Is everybody in? Is everybody in? The podcast is about to begin. Graveyard Grumbler Podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 94 of the Graveyard Grumbler Podcast. I'm your host, Tina Romero Jr., a.k.a. The Graveyard Grumbler. Today's episode is a listener request. The listener goes by the name of N.T. He messaged me and he's like, yo, you should do an episode on the Golden State Killer. I said, man, I think I will. He also gave me another suggestion that I'll probably do the following week. But today we're going to do the episode on the Golden State Killer. Who is the Golden State Killer? You may ask. The crazy thing is, when I was growing up, I actually heard a little bit about the Golden State Killer since I grew up in the San Joaquin Valley. And it was a lot of the areas, I mean, not in my specific area in Bakersfield, California, but in just north of Bakersfield in the Visalia area, Sacramento. I heard about him, but I just never, just never interested me until now that I'm, I'm running a podcast and I do episodes. <laughs> so let's get into it. Who was the Golden State Killer? Many people want to know. Joseph James D'Angelo Jr. was born on November 8, 1945 in Bath, New Jersey to Kathleen Louis de Groot and Joseph James D'Angelo, a sergeant in the, unit in the United States Army. He has two sisters and a younger brother. So a little regular family dynamic. Dad was in the military. Not big deal. All right. A relative reported that when D'Angelo was a young child, he witnessed his seven-year-old sister's rape by two airmen in a warehouse in West Germany where the family was stationed at the time. Following D'Angelo's conviction, one of his sisters claimed that he was abused by their father while he was growing up. That is never a good thing to see. Especially for a seven-year-old to be raped by two airmen, and then you witness it as a young child. That is, that's probably one of the most devastating, most traumatic things you can ever experience as a child, or ever, not even as a child, just period, as a human being. So right there, we can automatically see right away that Things are not going to go well for his mental health, and he is not going to be doing very well mentally, and his stability probably is rocked by now. And then now that his, uh, when he was arrested, his sister is saying that he was abused by his father while he was growing up. Now you, you watch your seven-year-old sister get raped by two airmen, by two grown men. And then now, and on top of that, you are also being abused by your own father. That is not the best environment to raise a well-balanced human being. So we're already knowing that, I mean, with the Golden State Killer title as, my, as the episode title, we already know that shit's going to go all bad. And we just need to know when, how, and how bad it actually goes. And I'm telling you right now, it, goes, it gets pretty bad. It's not super graphic. I, I, the, a lot of the, the investigations that I've done or the research that I was reading, it wasn't super graphic, so I don't really need to have listener discretion is, is advised. But it, it gets pretty bad. Between 1959 and 1960, D'Angelo attended Mills Junior High School in Rancho Cordova, California. Beginning in 1961, he attended Folsom High School, from which he received a GED certificate in 1964. Hey, I don't want to point that out, but that's what him and I have in common. We both have our GEDs, good enough diploma. <laughs> he played on the school's junior varsity baseball team. Prosecutors reported that D'Angelo committed burglaries and tortured and killed animals during his teenage years. So I've mentioned this several times in my past podcast. Whenever we hear, whenever we hear people torture animals, that is a, a number one sign that the individual who can harm animals is a sociopath, which, I mean, if you look at it over and over, one of the, like I said, I mean, one of the, the, the common traits that they have is that they've harmed little animals or they have not animals. They just harmed animals when they were children. It's just some sort of disconnect with, with, with emotion and empathy and just moral compass altogether. And it, it, it's a, if it's not nipped in the bud, then it's going to spiral out of control and we're going to have what we have now. We have serial killers. We have deranged sociopaths. And unfortunately, we also have some high-functioning, very, very important members of society who are sociopaths. But if you started looking deeper into their childhood, they, they abused animals quite frequently. 
D'Angelo joined the United States Navy in September 1964 and served for 22 months during the Vietnam War as a damage controlman on the cruiser USS Canberra and the destroyer, the destroyer tender USS Piedmont. Beginning in August 1968, D'Angelo attended Sierra College in Rockland, California. He graduated with an associate's degree in police science with honors. So when I started reading this, I actually had to read that part twice, that he, he graduated with an associate's degree in police science with honors, meaning that he wants to become a cop. So he, after, he, after he got out of the military, he already had an idea, yo, I'm just going to become a cop. I'm going to save the world and everything's going to be great. But if we know, if we look at the, the history of corrupt police officers, a lot of times police officers or people who join the police force do it so they can freely abuse their power and intimidate people into not telling on their injustice. I'm not making this a racial thing. I'm making this a factual thing. A lot of times whenever sociopaths become law enforcement officers, their number one goal is to get away with their crime and with, with extreme intimidation. What better place to do it as law enforcement? You rat me out, I'll fucking arrest you. Yeah, but you just rape me. It doesn't matter. I'm the, I'm the law. Who are you going to call? Me? Yeah. I'm already here. There's nothing you can do about it. It's, it's, it's going to be all bad and you can't do anything about it. Bottom line. So this guy, D'Angelo, wanted to become a police officer. It's not good for society. I mean, he was abusing small animals. He might have been abused. It's alleged his sister claims that he was abused. I, I didn't find any solidification that he was abused as a child. But, I mean, who's, who's there to say that, that he really wasn't? No one, really, just him. He attended Sacramento State University in 1971, where he earned a bachelor's degree in criminal justice. D'Angelo later took postgraduate graduate courses and further police training at the College of Sequoias in Visalia, then completed a 32-week police internship at the police department in, Rose, in Roseville. Visalia, away from where I lived in Bakersfield, California, where I was born and raised, is literally like 30, 45 minutes, I think, maybe an hour. Maybe, I don't remember. It's been a long time. I used to go to Visalia all the time. I think it's about an hour. And I used to go to Delano all the time as well. From May 1973 to August 1976, D'Angelo was a burglary unit police officer in Exeter, having relocated from Citrus Heights. He then served in Auburn from August 1976 to July 1979 when he was arrested for shoplifting a hammer and dog repellent. He was sentenced to six months of probation and fired that October. During the process of being fired, D'Angelo threatened to kill the chief of police and allegedly stalked the chief's house. So right then and there, when we already see that, I mean, he was, you have a job and you're going to get arrested for stealing a hammer and dog repellent. And because of that, you're going to get fired from your cushy cop job. And then you're going to get mad and stalk the chief's house. Why wasn't there a crime report or, or some sort of arrest or something put on file to where this man is a danger to society? When you have the fucking balls, Paulie, the fucking balls to stalk the police chief's house. And you're not worried about getting shot and killed by the fellow cops because you're stalking the police chief's house. That's a dangerous man. That's some fucking balls, I'm telling you. So why not put out a crime thing on this guy so if he, if he violates again, boom, we're done. Let's put him in jail. In May 1970, law enforcement student D'Angelo became engaged to nursing student Bonnie Jean Caldwell, a classmate at Sierra College, but she broke, off, but she broke it off in 1971 after D'Angelo became manipulative and abusive. Good for her. After the breakup, he threatened her with a gun in order to force her to marry him. Again, why didn't we have police intervene? Why didn't she put any sort of, of red flag on this guy? So therefore, if he violates something again, he can just go directly to jail. Do not pass go. Do not collect $200. Go directly to jail. I mean, what... What kind of audacity do you have someone where, you, where you're being manipulative and abusive and your girlfriend breaks up with you and you just can't deal with it. So you, you, threaten, her to, you threaten her with a gun in order to get her hand in marriage. 
I don't know if you know this, pal, but that's probably not the best way to start off a new marriage. When you do it out of threat, intimidation, and fear, I don't think the gal is going to love you for who you are, guy. She's going to love her life and not been shot in the fucking head with a Smith & Wesson. But I mean, that's just, that's just me on the outside looking in. I don't know. They might live happily ever after as long as that gun's loaded. In November 1973, he married Sharon Marie Huddle in Placer. In 1980, they purchased a house in Citrus Heights where he eventually, where he was eventually rest, arrested decades later, later. So the good thing is that Bonnie John, Jean Caldwell did not marry him, even though she, he threatened her with a fucking gun. Instead, he married Sharon Marie Huddle in, in Placer, in Placer, California. In 1980, they purchased a house in Citrus Heights where he was eventually arrested decades later. Well, that's sweet. You're going to get arrested in the same house you bought. I mean, at least you were at home when you were arrested. Huddle became a divorce attorney in 1982, and they had three daughters who, they were, hold on. They had three daughters. Two were born in Sacramento, and one was born in Los Angeles before the couple separated in 1991. So obviously, he's having a hard time to, he's having a hard time committing and actually being a good civilized individual. That's why he can't stay with the inside of a relationship. In July 2018, several months after D'Angelo's arrest, Huddle filed for a divorce, which was finalized the following year. So he was arrested in 2018. Remember that, that, that year, because as I start reading throughout all of his crimes, and there's a lot of crimes that he committed, after I, when I finish reading through everything that he's done, you're going to be shocked at how long it, 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 was, it took to get him arrested. It's insane. It's it literally insane. In July 2018, several months after D'Angelo's arrest, he was arrested in, in 2018. And finally, his wife said, look, I can't take it anymore. We are getting divorced. That's insane. Just, just listen. Just listen. D'Angelo's employment history during the 1980s is unknown. From 1989 until his retirement in 2017, he worked as a truck mechanic at Save Mart Supermarkets Distribution Center in Roseville. He was arrested in 1996 over failing to pay for gas, but the charge was dismissed. 1996, he was arrested for failing to pay gas, but not arrested for any other thing. Why? Because there was nothing on file, I'm guessing. D'Angelo's brother-in-law claimed that D'Angelo would casually bring up the East Area Rapist in conversation around the time of the original crimes. Neighbors reported that he frequently engaged in loud, profane outbursts. I don't know how I'm going to deal. I, I, I lucked out living here. Well, I mean, we didn't know the area. And I'm super lucky that we don't have loud, obnoxious neighbors. Now, I have one neighbor here that's involved in some illegal activities, but he keeps it to himself. His customers are really nice. <laughs> they don't park in my driveway. They don't block my way. They just mind their business, do what they got to do, and they leave. It's fucking awesome. I couldn't imagine living to someone who was loud and obnoxious like that. I would, I would probably try to burn their house down. You know? One neighbor reported that his family received a phone message from D'Angelo threatening to, quote, deliver a load of death because of their barking dog. He was living with a daughter and granddaughter at the time of his arrest. How are you going to call threaten somebody because their dog is being loud? Yes, dogs are annoying, but it's a dog, man. If you, if you have such a hard time... Take the dog inside. I mean, literally, take just take the dog inside. My dog, for some reason, has gotten brave lately to where we let her out and she'll start barking randomly at random ass people. She's never really barked at anybody before, but now she wants to be all big and bad behind the fence and start barking at people. It's fucking annoying. So let's get into his crimes. This is where I'm going to have you go grab your cup of coffee, your cup of tea, your glass of vodka, your drink for whatever you're having, your juice box, whatever you're going to have. Your non-alcoholic beer, whatever you want to have, because this is going to be a long-ass list of what he has done. When I started doing the research, I was I, I started peeking into it. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. You know, it's not whoa, and I just kept going down and reading and reading and reading. I'm like, goddamn, that is a lot of shit that I'm going to talk about. So now that I've done the filler part, I gave you a little bit of monologue to give you enough time to go get your drink of your choosing. Adult beverage or not. Let's go ahead and start getting into his crimes. 
DNA evidence linked D'Angelo to eight murders in Goleta, Ventura, in Goleta, Ventura, Dana Point, and Irvine. Two other murders in Goleta lacking DNA evidence were linked to modus operandi. D'Angelo pleaded guilty to three other murders, two in Rancho Cordova and one in Visalia. So this is just the tip of the iceberg, you guys. This is just the tip of the iceberg. The list keeps going and going. He also committed more than 50 known rapes in the California counties of Sacramento, Contra Costa, Stanislaus, San Joaquin, Alameda, Santa Clarita, and Yolo. And he was linked to hundreds of incidents of thefts, thefts, burglary, vandalism, peeping, stalking, and prowling. So if you guys haven't guessed yet, the Golden State murderer, he is also considered the original Night Stalker. I, I, did, do a, a, I did do an episode a while ago on Richard Ramirez, the Night Stalker. But apparently, that wasn't the original Night Stalker. Apparently, this guy, D'Angelo, was the original Night Stalker. And including in his crimes, he was accused of vandalism, peeping, stalking, and prowling. I I think that's one of the creepiest things. I don't know what's worse, being just stalked and peeped on or someone actually breaking into the house when I'm not home. I I don't know what's worse. Either way, if I catch the motherfucker, you know, pop, pop. I'm not saying anything, but pop, pop. It was long suspected that the training ground of the criminal who became the East Area Rapist was Visalia. Although earlier Visalia crimes dating back as early as May 1973 and other sprees like that of the Cordova Cap Burglar and the Exeter Ransacker, as well as Visalia burglaries that took place after the McGowan shooting, are now suspected to be linked as well. So not only has this guy been been linked to one of these areas, now he's been linked to several different occasions and different sprees across the or across California in multiple counties like I read earlier. What blows my mind is that someone is able to get away with all this shit for so long and law enforcement has such a hard time pinning it on him, getting him arrested and and and, and dealing with the situation. And now I'm not blaming poor law enforcement. I'm not blaming them at all. I understand the difficulty of trying to catch someone when you don't know where they're going to strike. But it just blows my mind that, that people who, who do this shit are able to get away with it for so long. I mean, it's either they're good at what they're doing, which I hate to admit, or law enforcement just isn't that good or they need better resources. The worst thing, I'm not going to say, well, we're not going to get into that. We're, 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 we're going to keep avoiding that situation. Let's just keep, let's just continue with the episode. Over a period of 20 months, D'Angelo is believed to have been responsible for one murder and around 120 burglaries. One murder and around 120 burglaries. That's a lot of burglaries, man. God damn. In late April 2018, the Visalia chief of police stated that while there was no DNA linking D'Angelo to the Central Valley cases, his department had other evidence that played a role in the investigation, and he was confident that the Visalia ransacker has been captured. So there was no DNA evidence, but they're confident that the that D'Angelo guy was the Visalia ransacker. For those of you who are curious about that, just Google Visalia ransacker and a whole bunch of shit will pop up about all this shit that he's that this guy's done. If I would have added that, if I would have added each one of his sprees into this episode, this probably would have been a three-hour episode, and I'm not down with a three-hour episode. I mean, this episode's already gonna be long enough. So if you're curious, just look up Visalia Ransacker and that shit, a bunch of crap's going to come out. It's crazy. And like I said, I remember hearing about the Visalia Ransacker when I was growing up. When, uh, when uh, I mean, it wasn't after he was committed. Don't get me, he wasn't committing the crimes. He committed the crimes in the 70s. I, I was born in the 80s and I, and I was coherent as a child in the 90s. So I grew up in, in 1990, I was nine years old. In, 80, in 1991, I was 10 years old. So at 10 years old, I started having an understanding on about the news and the shit that was going around in our surrounding area. I just knew that I grew up in a really bad crip na- neighborhood, country boy crip to be exact. And I just realized that, damn, this is not a safe environment for me. But it, after a while, it didn't really bother me because, I mean, it was just normal to me. But I remember hearing about the Visalia Ransacker and I asked my mom what a Ransacker was and she told me I was crazy. I don't need to know about that. I was like, oh, okay. Well, I guess I don't. I mean, it was, I'm pretty sure it was my mom's way of protecting me and not having me freak out. But at the same time, I didn't know what it was. Though the statutes of limitations for the, for the burglaries have, have each expired, D'Angelo was formally charged on August 13, 2018 with the first degree murder of Claude Snelling in, 19, in 1975. In 2020, D'Angelo pleaded guilty to the Snelling murder. 
You, you heard that right. In 2020, D'Angelo pleaded guilty to the Snelling murder. In 2020, my friends. Not 1920, not 1991, not 1995, not 2000. We're talking about last year. He pleaded guilty to the Snelling murder. The first recorded ransacking occurred on March 1974. While often ignoring banknotes and higher value items in plain sight. So there was a, a buddy of mine that I knew. There was a buddy of mine that was a very, very, very insane individual. I knew this guy in high school when, when my junior senior year. We were both heavily into drugs. He was heavily into making crime his career. Me not not so much. There there was a lot of things that I did that I that I did when it, that was one hundred percent illegal. But at the same time, I still had some sort of ethics and moral compass. Where I look, I if I get arrested, I know I'm going to spend a few months in juvenile hall. But if I do this, there's a chance I'm going to spend several years in juvenile hall, and I'm just not ready to do that. But a buddy of mine would break into people's houses, and he would steal low value items. I mean, he would steal like Walkman or Discman. He would steal coins, but it would always be under X amount of money. He would go in and steal jewelry, but not expensive looking jewelry. He would would buy stuff that pretty much were knockoffs or he would, and he would avoid, I mean, there was one time he was telling me he broke into a house and on the, and inside one of the drawers of the guy's nightstand, he had about $5,000 just sitting there, but he didn't take it. Instead, he took about $300. And left the rest. And I asked him, I said, why, would, why wouldn't you have just taken the $5,000? He said, look, man, it's already bad enough that I've broken into, into things. But if I start stealing high-priced items, then they're going to start reporting me more and more and more. If I, if I don't steal high-priced items and I steal things that they're, they're, they're not going to miss too much, then it's less likely they're actually going to report, the cop, report it to the cops. So the biggest thing that they're going to do to beef up their security, put an alarm in, and okay, that's fine. But at least there won't be a trail mark with my with with, with me stealing high priced items. So I'm guessing that what D'Angelo did was pretty much the same type of deal. He would steal the sum of fifty dollars in coins, and uh, most of Ransacker's activities involved breaking into houses, rifling through or vandalizing the owner's possession, scattering women's underclothes, and stealing a range of low value items while often ignoring banknotes and higher value items in plain sight. And also for my understanding is that if the lower the lower amount or the lower value of stuff that is stolen that you're caught with, the less time you're going to get for the fact that it's not priced to where it's a, it's it's detrimental or that it's a financial financial devastation if you're caught if if the owner reports it and you get caught with it. So in my, instead of getting a felony for stealing $1,000, you're going to get a misdemeanor or a slap on the wrist for stealing $100, or in this case, $50 worth of coins from a piggy bank. So criminals are dumb to a certain extent, but at the same time, the, the, the criminals who decide that they want to make this their career are pretty intelligent, and that's scary. Think about it. For the people that use stuff in engineering and other common sense that are really intelligent, we have these criminals that are doing the same thing. But let's continue. The ransacker would often arrange or display items in the house. Items emptied included piggy banks and coin jars, and stolen items often included blue chip stamps, foreign or historic coins, and personal items such as single earrings, cufflinks, rings, or medallions, but also included six weapons and various types of ammunition. Multiple same-day ransackings were common as well, including 12 separate incidents on November 30th, 1974. Now, back in the olden days and back in the, in the 1900s, as now as, as Generation Z says it, can you imagine where the, when, when you talk about you grow up, hey, did you grow up in the early 1900s? What the fuck? Man, shut up. <laughs> the security systems weren't as advanced as they are now. I mean, hell... You now have someone that you're, you're, you get recorded as soon as you start walking onto property. 
you push a doorbell or you get even close within it, like on the ring doorbell, you just start getting recorded immediately and alerts send out to your phone. That's amazing. From back in the day, all you had was a dog. And maybe, and a lot of times back in the 70s, people didn't even lock their doors. Insane, right? Common MOs of the burglaries included climbing fences and moving through established routes such as parks, walkways, ditches, and trails. Attempting to pry open multiple points of entry, particularly windows. Leaving multiple points of escape open, especially windows, as well as the house, garage, and garden doors. Moving removed window screens onto beds or into bedrooms. Placing warning items such as dishes or bottles against the doors and on-door handles. Wearing gloves given the absence of fingerprint evidence. So let me point something out. And there's a part on here where he said that he would put warning items such as dishes or bottles against the doors or on-door handles. So what that means, what that means is that when he's in the house burglarizing it on the bedroom door, he would, play, he would stack up dishes where they would be off balance to where if, if the people in the house opened the door, the glass would fall or the dishes would fall, make a noise, and that would give him a chance to take off running from the house so he wouldn't get caught or have any confrontation. That is by far the most primitive, brilliant way for you not to get caught while you're inside of a house. Not so much now since there are cameras inside of houses everywhere you go. But overall, before there was the technology that we have now, the best way to warn Pete, warn yourself that the owners were waking up. Because remember, you're ransacking this house while people are still inside sleeping. So you have to make sure that you're able to get out of there at a decent time and without being caught. So it's brilliant. It's primitive. Don't get me wrong. I mean, that's like Acme, Looney Tunes shit. But it's brilliant enough to where it actually worked. And it allowed him to get away with a lot of crimes. Nuts, right? On September 11th, 1970, on September 11th, 1975, D'Angelo broke into the home of Claude Snelling who was 45, at 532 Whitney Lane, now South Whitney Street. Snelling, a journalism professor at the College of the Sequoias, had previously chased a prowler discovered under his daughter's window around 10 p.m. on February 5th, 1975. Snelling, I believe, was the guy that he killed. On September 11th, he was awakened around 2 a.m. by strange noises. Upon leaving his bedroom, Snelling ran through the open back door and confronted a ski-masked intruder in his carport attempting to kidnap his daughter. What the hell? Whoa. Okay, whoa, 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 whoa. Upon leaving his bedroom, Snelling ran through the open back door and confronted a ski-masked intruder in his carport attempting to kidnap his daughter, who had been subdued with threats of being stabbed or shot. Snelling was then shot twice, staggered back into the house to his wife, and later died. Could you imagine, you as a parent, mother or father, it doesn't matter. But you run outside to see the, to confront one of your biggest fears ever in the entire fucking world. And seeing your child being abducted and you are helpless and you cannot help. You can't do anything about it. You attempt to save your child's life and then you get blasted by some flea-bitten one-time crook. I, I, that, is, that blows my mind right there. Literally, that blows my mind. Holy crap. After the shooting, the assailant fled the scene, leaving behind a stolen bicycle at 615 Redwood Street. After the murder, Beth Snelling, 16, a cheerleader, at, a cheerleader at Mount Whitney High School, underwent hypnosis in order to gather further details. Well, at least he didn't abduct her. At least he left her there. But could you imagine, though? Oh, my gosh. Just close your eyes and imagine. You hear a noise. You run outside because your back door is open. And you see your daughter in the arms of someone taking her away from you. Oh, my God. Where, where, is, where is Liam Neeson at when you fucking need him? Oh, my gosh. Again, let, let me give you a little reminder. When I do this research, I don't read through it. I read, I, I skim through it, pick out some details, put it into my notes, and away we go. I don't read everything for, word for word when I'm getting the, 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 the research together in order to put it together this episode. 
So when I'm reading, I'm discovering this just as new as you guys are. I want to make my reaction more authentic. The Visalia police also committed more resources to apprehending the ransacker and a $4,000 reward, which equivalent to $19,366 in 2021, was posted. Nighttime stakeouts were set up near houses that he had previously prowled, but the ransackings continued. You're not going to... I don't understand. Hold on. You know, let, let, me, let me just throw this out there. I understand that law enforcement agencies have a lot of a lot of things going on. I know that they have things that they just can't deal with. And I know there's a lot of things that they don't understand. But one thing that I want law enforcement for all of my law enforcement people, which I know you know this by now, but this is back in the 1970s. The person isn't going to go. It's very rare that the person is going to strike twice at the place that he originally struck at. He's not going to go back and burglarize, burglar, burglarize. <laughs> I had a hard time saying that word. The same place that he already hit. Is he going to be in the same area? Quite possibly. But if you have someone who's intelligent, they're going to hit a few houses in that area, jump out to another area to throw off the tracks, and then head back to that area later on down the road, knowing that he can get away with it because now they have all the resources heading to the area that he just struck. You got to think like a criminal in order to catch a criminal. And I think a lot of times law enforcement, I don't know about now, I, I, I don't follow law enforcement the way that I follow older law enforcement because a lot of my, my episodes are about older back in the 1900s. But it seems like law enforcement didn't really think like criminals in order to apprehend these criminals. And it's crazy. Around 8.30 p.m. on December 12, 1975, a masked man entered the backyard of a house at 1505 West Coea Avenue, near where the ransacker had been reported to frequent. When Detective William McGowan, who was on stakeout inside the garage, attempted to, to detain the man, the suspect shrieked, removed his mask, and feigned surrender after McGowan fired a warning shot. Hold on, wait a minute. We have this, this burglar here who, who attempted to abduct a, a child, and then when the cop caught him, the cop, this dude shrieked, he screamed, removed his mask, and feigned surrender after the cop fired a warning shot. Come on, man. You're supposed to be a thug. All about it, about it. All rowdy, rowdy. Fuck out of here. However, after jumping the fence to the house at 1501, he also pulled out a revolver with his left hand and fired once near McGowan's face, shattering his flashlight. Nearby officers rushed to aid McGowan, and the shooter was able to escape. Items collected as evidence included the flashlight, tennis, tennis shoe sh tracks, and dropped loot, namely blue chip stamps and a blue sock full of coins. So this dude got away. This dude got away. He screamed, ah! And then he shot back at the cop, shattering the flashlight, and the dude gets away. We have a stakeout. We have multiple police in the area, and this dude still gets away. It sounds like a bad 70s sitcom show, a, cop, a bad cop show. Like Starsky and Hutch. Just, just bad. D'Angelo moved to Sacramento area in 1976 where his crimes escalated from burglary to rape. The crimes initially centered on the then unincorporated areas of Carmichael Citrus Heights and Rancho Cordova east of Sacramento. New area. New area who dis? Time to ransack some house. His initial modus operandi was to stalk so what modus, I just figured this out. What modus operandi means, that's M-O. When people says, what's his M-O? What's his, what's his criminal's M-O? What's his M-O? That's what it is, modus operandi. Oh, I tell you, why not just say, why didn't, why not just M-O? His initial M-O was to stalk middle-class neighborhoods at night in search of women who were alone in one-story homes, usually near a school creek trail, usually near a school creek trail or other open space that would provide a quick escape. He was seen a number of times, but always successfully fled. On one occasion, he shot and seriously wounded a young pursuer. God damn. See, if you're going to be a good Samaritan, if you're going to be Captain America, you need to be careful because you're probably going to get shot or get the shit beat out of you. One or both. Most victims had seen or heard a prowler on their property before the attacks, and many had experienced break-ins. Police believed that the offender would conduct extensive reconnaissance in a targeted neighborhood looking into windows and prowling in yards before selecting a home to attack. Yeah, he was casing the house. That's common. He was casing the house. I remember I cased houses for my buddy a couple of times. 
but I couldn't case them all night with him because my mom would yell at me. I had to get home at a certain time. So I was only able to case the house until I got out of school, which was about 3.30, 4 o'clock. Five o'clock if I had after school activities. Was, 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 was my, were my casing successful? No, because I did shitty. Like, hey, man, they're gone. Well, yeah, they're gone, Tino. They're at work. They don't get home until six o'clock. Why are you telling me this? Well, you told me to watch the house. Is there anybody else in the house? I don't know, man. I didn't go check. Oh, I t- get out of here. I got fired. It was believed that he sometimes entered the homes of future victims to unlock windows, unload, glo- unload guns, and plant ligatures for later use. He frequently telephoned future victims, sometimes for months in advance, to learn their daily routines. That's, that's, I mean, that's brilliant. I hate to admit it, but that's brilliant. Although D'Angelo originally targeted women alone in their homes or with children, he eventually preferred attacking couples. This change, this change in modus operandi is believed to be a direct result of media reports claiming he only attacked women alone in their home. So now, let's change it up and let's not make the scent Based off of me, now there's two victims, maybe a copycat. Because now he's not doing what he normally does. Now he's not attacking single women with children. Now he's attacking couples. The ransacker isn't going to attack couples. That's not the same guy. Maybe it's somebody else. So let's not focus our, our mind too much on this guy now. Let's focus on this guy. His usual method was to break in through a window or sliding glass door and awaken the sleeping occupants with a flashlight, threatening them with a gun. Victims were subsequently bound with ligatures, often shoelaces, that he found or brought with him, then blindfolded and gagged with towels that he ripped into strips. That would be the shittiest thing, to wake up with a flashlight and a gun to your face, and then you get tied up. Oh, my gosh. Oh, jeez. The female victim was usually forced to tie up her male companion before she was bound. The bindings were so the bindings were often so tight that the victim's hands were numb for hours after being untied. God damn. He then separated the couple, often stacking dishes on the male's back and threatening to kill everyone in the house if he heard them rattle. Think about that. You are trying to save your wife who is bound with someone in the other room that you cannot see. And then this guy would stack, D'Angelo would often stack dishes on the male's back. Again, that was a warning to where if he moves, he can hear him rattle and it would be over. He would move the woman to the living room and rape her, often repeatedly. A police reported that D'Angelo repeatedly said, I hate you, Bonnie, during a 1978 rape, the 37th attack. What kind of pent-up anger? What the fuck is going on with this guy where he's yelling, I hate you, Bonnie, during a rape? Mind you, the 37th attack that cops were aware of, were aware of. I mean, how awful would that be? You're bound up with dishes on your back, and you can hear your wife screaming for help and begging this rapist to stop. And... He just rep, he just raping women repeatedly in the same house as as you're being. You're, oh my gosh! D'Angelo sometimes spent hours in the home ransacking closets and drawers, eating food in the kitchen, drinking beer, raping the women again, or making additional threats. Victims sometimes thought that he had left the house before he jumped from the darkness. Oh my gosh! Can you imagine what kind of sick shit is that? After he's in the house for hours and then it goes completely quiet. Now the people think that that the guy left and all of a sudden, wow, surprise, motherfucker. I'm still in the house, motherfucker. I came out of the darkness, motherfucker. Can you imagine that shit? What kind of child bullshit games is that? D'Angelo would spend hours in the home ransacking the closets and drawers. On top of that, he would eat their food, drink the shit that they have, drink their beer, rape women again. And then once the victims thought that he had left, but he, the dude would jump out from the darkness. Surprise, motherfucker. Jesus Christ. I'm here to rape you, motherfucker. Jesus Christmas trees in June. He typically stole items, often personal objects and items of little value, but occasionally cash and firearms. He then crept away, leaving victims uncertain if he had left, leaving victims uncertain if he had left. 
He was believed to escape on foot through a series of yards and then use a bicycle to go home or to a car, making extensive use of park schoolyards, creek beds, and other open spaces that kept him off the street. I mean, I can't, I can't knock the guy. I mean, what his escape plan, his escape plan and routes are pretty, pretty fucking, uh, pretty brilliant. Don't get me wrong. The East Area Rapists operated in Sacramento County from the first attacks in June 1976 until May of 1977. After a three-month gap, he struck in nearby San Joaquin County in September before returning to Sacramento for all but one of the next 10 attacks. The rapist attacked five times during the summer of 1978 in Stanislaus and Yolo counties before disappearing again for three months. Attacks then moved primarily to Contra Costa County in October and lasted until July 1979. A young Sacramento couple, Brian uh, McGorry, a military policeman at Mather Air Force Base, and his wife, Katie McGorry, were were walking their dog in the Rancho Cordova area on the night of February 2nd, 1978, near where five East Area rapist attacks had occurred. The Marguerites fled after a confrontation in the street, but were chased down and shot to death. Shot to death. They were just walking their dog and this asshole. Some investigators suspected that they had been murdered by the East Area Rapists because of their proximity to the other attacks. Lo- the other attacks location and a shoelace was found nearby. Remember, he used shoelaces, shoelaces to, tie everybody's, to tie everybody up. The FBI, the FBI announced on June 15, 2016, that it was confident that the East Area Rapists had murdered the, the Marguerites, the Magories. On June 29, 2020, D'Angelo entered a plea of a plea of guilty to these murders. Now, this happened in June 16. In this, this was let me see. This occurred in 1978, and he was the FBI announced that on June 15, 2016, that. They are confident that D'Angelo was the one who murdered the Magories. And then on June 29th, 2020, D'Angelo entered a plea of guilty to these murders in 1978. Why is it taking so long? Again, I'm going to try to keep this less opinionated. I don't want anybody to think that my, my podcast is severely one-sided or that I am heavily opinionated, even though I am. I'll just keep it to a minimum. That way you can enjoy the actual information and not hear too much of me grumbling. Shortly after the rape committed on July 5th, 1979, D'Angelo moved to Southern California and began killing his victims, first striking in Santa Barbara County in October. The attacks lasted until 1981 with a lone 1986 attack. So he said, fuck it, I'm out. This place is too hot. Está muy caliente. I need to go. So he packed up the wagon and left. Only the couple in the first attack survived, alerting neighbors and forcing the intruder to flee. The other victims were murdered by gunshot or bludgeoning. Since D'Angelo was not linked to these crimes for decades, he was known as the Night Stalker in the area before being renamed the original Night Stalker after serial killer Richard Ramirez received received the formal nickname. So this guy was the original Night Stalker and Richard Ramirez was just the Night Stalker. Either way, that's, that's still a shitty thing to even be... To have a nickname. One of the things that 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 I, I don't understand is why are you going to give these these serial killers and these motherfuckers so much attention? The more you do it, the more they get off on it, and the more that they want to do it to make sure that their name stays relevant. It's like this big high for them. But hey, what do I know? I'm not media. I'm just the king of radio and the king of podcast. So number three, taunting. We're going to get into his taunting, which is pretty fucked up if you ask me. You're already killing people left and right, raping people left and right, and now you're going to start taunting the law enforcement agency? If you remember, that's actually quite relevant to the Zodiac Killer. The Zodiac Killer sent those those weird fucking codes taunting law enforcement. So now we have the original Night Stalker doing the same. Well, not, not really exactly the same, but he's taunting law enforcement. In December 1977, someone claiming to be the East Area Rapist sent a poem, a poem called Excitement's Crave. They sent it to the Sacramento Bee, the Sacramento Mayor's Office, and television station KVI. On December 11th, a masked man eluded pursuit by law enforcement personnel after alerting authorities by telephone 
that he would strike on Watt Avenue that night. So let me read to you Excitement's Crave, the poem allegedly written by D'Angelo, the original Night Stalker. I mean, I have to admit, it, it's, pretty, it's pretty good. <laughs> Excitement's Crave by the alleged original Night Stalker. All those mortals surviving birth upon facing maturity, taking inventory of their worth to prevailing society. Choosing values becomes a task. One self must seek satisfaction. The selected route will unmask character will unmask character when plans take action. Accepting some work to perform at fixed pay but promise for more is a recognized social norm as is decorum seeking lore. Achieving while others lifting should be cause for deserving fame. Leisure tempts excitement seeking. What's right and expects seems tame. Jesse James has been seen by all and son of Sam has an author. Others now, others now feel temptations call Sacramento should make an offer to make a movie, to make a movie, to make a movie of my life that will pay for my planned exile. Just now I'd like to add the wife of a mafia Lord to my file. Your East area rapist and deserving pest. See you in the press or on TV. During the, inve- the investigation in Danville of the 42nd attack, investors discovered three sheets of notebook paper near where a suspicious vehicle had reportedly been parked. They believe the pages were dropped accidentally, perhaps falling out of a bag. The first sheet appears to be a homework essay on General George Armstrong Custer. The second sheet contains a journal entry describing a teacher who made student write lines, which author found humiliating. Now, when I read this, I actually read this because I was confused with what it meant. This was something that he kept in his journal from when he was a sixth grader. So he's just having a hard time letting go of humiliation, but yet he's humiliating all these people, I guess, in retaliation. Maybe that, I mean, that's just my, my guess. So let's, let's read this journal entry and let's find out a little bit more. Mad is the word, the word that reminds me of sixth grade. I hated that year. I wish I hadn't, I wish I had known what was going on to be, I wish I had known what was going to be going on during my sixth grade year, the last and worst year of elementary school. Mad is the word that remains in my head about my dreadful year as a sixth grader. My madness was one that was caused by disappointments that hurt me very much. Disappointments from my teachers, such as failed trips that were planned, then canceled. My sixth grade teacher gave me a lot of disappointments, which made me very mad and made me build made me build a state of hatred in my heart. No one ever let me down that hard before, and I never hated anyone as much as I did him. Disappointment wasn't the only reason that made me mad in my sixth grade class. Another was getting in trouble at school, especially talking. That's what really bugged me, was writing sentences. Those awful sentences that made my teacher... Those awful sentences that made my teacher made me write. Hours and hours, I'd sit and write 50, 100, 150 sentences, sentences, a sentence day and night. I write those dreadful paragraphs, which embarrassed me. And more important, it made me ashamed of myself, which in turn, deep down inside, made me realize that writing sentences wasn't fair. It wasn't fair to make me suffer like that. It just wasn't fair to make me sit and write until my bones ached, until my hand felt every horrid pain. It ever had, and as I wrote, I got madder and madder until I cried. I cried because I was ashamed. I cried because I was disgusted. I cried because I was mad, and I cried for myself. A kid who kept on having to write sentence, write those Dane sentences. Angriness from sixth grade will scar my memory for life, and I will be ashamed for my sixth grade year forever. Jesus Christ, this dude is all fucked up. He can't write worth a damn. One last sheet of paper was a hand-drawn map of what appears to be a suburban neighborhood with the word punishment scrawled across the reverse side. Investigators were unable to identify the area depicted in the map, although the artist clearly had knowledge of architectural layout and landscape design. According to Detective Larry Poole, the map is a fantasy location representing the rapist's desired striking ground. You know what's worse is that when you're trying to map something out, you're trying to find something, but the only person that understands the map is the person that draws it. Or who has, who has created it. And what sucks is that it may not make sense because it doesn't match anything. But in that person's mind who created it, it is a very, very 
accurate map and I mean pinpoint area where he's going to attack, but they just can't figure it out because they're they're not in his brain. Phone calls on March eighteenth, eighteen or. Uh, phone calls. On March 18, 1977, the Sacramento County Sheriff's Office received three calls from a man claiming to be the East Area Rapist. None were recorded. The first two, rec- the first two calls received at 4.15 and 4.30 p.m. were identical and ended with the caller laughing and hanging up. The final call came in at 5 p.m. when the caller saying, I'm the East Side Rapist and I have my next victim already stalked and you guys can't catch me. God damn. December 2nd, 1977. A man claiming to be the rapist called the Sacramento Police Department saying, you're never going to catch me, East Area Rapist, you dumb fuckers. I'm going to I'm gonna fuck again tonight. Be careful. The call was recorded and later released. As with previous call, as with the previous call, the next victim was attacked that night. Can you imagine just calling and leaving shit like that and then, full, and then completing what you're, what you're going to do? God damn. December 9th, 1977, during the 1977 Christmas season, a previous victim received a phone call that she attributed to her attacker. The caller said, Merry Christmas, it's me again. December 10th, 1977, shortly before 10 p.m. on December 10th, 1977, Sacramento authorities received two identical phone calls saying, I'm going to hit tonight, Watt Avenue. Both were recorded and the caller was identified as the same person who placed the call on December 2nd. Law enforcement patrols were increased that night, and at 2.30 a.m., a a masked man eluded officers after being seen bicycling on the Watt Avenue Bridge. When spotted again at 4.30 a.m., he discarded the bicycle and fled on foot. The bicycle had been stolen. So I wonder if he he wanted to get away. Did he really want to get away with this stuff, or was he just taunting the police that bad? I mean, he called him to tell him exactly where he was going to be, and he was there at that time. Luckily, I don't think anybody was raped at that that night, but damn, he was still eluded the police officers. On January 2nd, 1978, the first known rape victim received a wrong number call asking for Ray on January 2nd, 1978. The call was recorded, and police suspect that it may be the same caller who made a threatening call to her later that evening. The call was, that call was also recorded and identified by the victim as the voice of her assailant. The caller said, gonna kill you, gonna kill you, gonna kill you, bitch, 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 fucking whore. January 6, 1978, a man claiming to be the East Area Rapist called the contact counseling service and said, quote, I have a problem, I need help because I don't want to do this anymore, end quote. After a short conversation, the caller said, I believe you are tracing this call and hung up. 1982 to 1981. In 1982, a previous victim received a call at her place of work at Denny's restaurant during which the rapist threatened to rape her again. According to Contra Costa County investigator Paul Holes, the rapist must have changed, must have chance to patronize the restaurant and recognize his victim there. In 1991, a previous victim received a phone call from the perpetrator and spoke with him for one minute. She could hear a woman and children in the background leading to speculation that he had a family. Jesus Christ. Final call, 2001. On the, on, in 2001. On April 6, 2001, one day after an article in the Sacramento Bee linked the original Night Stalker and the East Area Rapist, a victim of the rapist received a call from him. He asked, remember when we played? Oh my gosh, can you imagine receiving that phone call? Even hey, after... Even after being terrorized by this guy and then receiving the phone call saying, do you remember when we played? Even though, knowing that you had been raped by that person beforehand. Let's get into the investigation. This motherfucker has to be, he had to have been caught. Obviously, he wouldn't have been in prison. I wouldn't be doing this, this episode right now. So let's get into the investigation portion. Before officially connecting the original Night Stalker to the East Area Rapist in 2001, some law law enforcement officials, particularly from the Sacramento County Sheriff's Department, sought to link the Goleta cases as well. Let's throw all the cases on this motherfucker. The links were primarily due to similarities in modus operandi. One of the already linked original Night Stalker double murders occurred in Ventura, 40 miles or 64 kilometers for everyone out of America, southeast of Goleta, and the remaining murders were committed in Orange County, an additional 90 miles or 140 kilometers kilometers southeast. In 2001, several rapes in Contra Costa County believed to have been committed by the East Area Rapists were linked by DNA to the Smith-Harrington 
Witt Hun, and Cruz murders. A decade later, DNA evidence indicated that the Domingo Sanchez murders were also committed by the East Area Rapist, also identified as the Golden State Killer. On June 15, 2016, the FBI released further information related to the crimes, including new new composite sketches and crime details. A 50,000 reward was also announced. The initiative included a national database to support law enforcement's investigating of the crimes and to handle tips and information. Eventually, through the use of generic genealogy searching on GED Match, investigators identified distant relatives of D'Angelo, including family members directly related to his great-great-great-great-grandfather, dating back to the 1800s. Based on this information, investigators built about 25 different family trees. Okay. that The tree that eventually linked to D'Angelo alone contained approximately 1,000 people. Over the course of a few months, investigators used other clues like age, sex, and place of residence to rule out suspects populating these trees, eliminating suspects one by one until only D'Angelo remained. That's a lot of fucking work. Hey, congratulations though on, on the law enforcement who, who did that shit. That, that's a lot of man hours invested in order to get this, this asshole. That's, that's, that's awesome. That's a, lot of, that's a lot of research that he went through. That the police, that the uh, law enforcement went through just to get to D'Angelo. Good. During the, during the investigation, several people were considered and later eliminated as suspects. Brett Glasby from Goleta was considered a suspect by Santa Barbara County investigators. He was murdered in Mexico in 1982 before the murder of Janelle Cruz, thus eliminating him as a suspect. Paul Cornfed Schneider, a high-ranking member of the Aryan Brotherhood, was living in Orange County when the Harringtons... Manuela Witton and Janelle Cruz were killed. A DNA test cleared him in the 1990s. Joe Alsip, a friend and business partner of the victim, Lyman Smith, Alsip's pastor said that Alsip had confessed to him during a family counseling session. Alsip was arraigned for the Smith murders in 1992, but the charges were later dropped and his innocence was confirmed by DNA testing in 1997. After D'Angelo was arrested, he was also suspected of committing the 1974 Visalia rape and murder of Jennifer Armour, the 1975 Exeter rape and murder of Donna Jo Richmond, and a 1978 murder of a woman and her son in, nine, in uh, Simi Valley, but was cleared as a, as a suspect in all three murders by DNA testing. Give it to him anyway. Pin it on him. Victoria police ruled out a link between D'Angelo, who docked in Australia during his Navy service, and the Melbourne serial child rapist and murderer known as Mr. Cruel. God damn. Just insane. So his arrest and trial, he was finally caught, and the year that he was caught, it was insane. Think about it. This, this, this shit was happening in the 70s. So on April 24th, 2018, April 24th, 2018, Sacramento County Sheriff's deputies arrested D'Angelo in 2018, and he was committing these crimes in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. He was charged with eight counts of first-degree murder with special circumstances. On May 10th, the Santa Barbara County District Attorney's Office charged D'Angelo with four additional counts of first-degree murder. Identification of D'Angelo had begun four months earlier when officials led by Detective Paul Holes, that's a shitty last name, and FBI lawyer Steve Kramer uploaded the killer's DNA profile from a Ventura County rape kit to the personal genomics website, GED Match. The website identified 10 to 20 people who had the same great-great-great-grandparents as the Golden State Killer. A team of five investigators working with genealogist Barbara Ray Venter used the list to construct a large family tree. From this tree, they established two suspects. One was ruled out by relatives' DNA test, leaving D'Angelo the main suspect. That is a lot of fucking work. Right on, you guys. That is badass. Congratulations, California law enforcement, for doing that shit back in that time. That's a lot of work. On April 18th, a DNA sample was serpentitiously collected from the door handle of D'Angelo's car. Another sample was later collected from a tissue found in D'Angelo's curbside garage can. Both were matched to samples associated with Golden State Killer crimes. Since D'Angelo's arrest, some commentators have raised concerns about the ethics of secondary use of personally identifiable information. Fuck you. There's no ethics about it. Burn them. Let's get them done. Take care of them. D'Angelo made a confession of sorts after his arrest 
that cryptically referred to an, an inner personality named Jerry who had forced him to commit the wave of crimes that ended abruptly in 1986. According to Sacramento County Prosecutor then Thien Ho, D'Angelo said the following to himself while alone in a police interrogation room after his arrest in April 2018. So he's claiming that he had multiple personalities and there was somebody inside of him that decided that by the name of Jerry, he's the one who committed these crimes. D'Angelo didn't commit these crimes. He just didn't have the ability to stop them. So this is what D'Angelo said during an interrogation or when he was alone. I believe that's what they said. D'Angelo said the following to himself while alone in a police interrogation room after his arrest in 2018. D'Angelo said, quote, I didn't have the strength to push him out. He made me. He went with me. It was like he was it was like in my head. I mean, he's a part of me. I didn't want to do those things. I pushed Jerry out and had a hip and had a happy life. I did all those things. I destroyed all their lives. So now I've got to pay the price, end quote. Dude, you know that you're just trying to work the insanity case on that shit. That was all you. That wasn't no goddamn Jerry. That was all you, man. Get the hell out of here. D'Angelo could not be charged with rapes or burglaries as the statute of limitations had expired for those offenses, but he was charged with 13 counts of murder and 13 counts of kidnapping. D'Angelo was arraigned in Sacramento on August 23rd, 2018. I do not agree with the statute of limitations. So roughly in a nutshell is that what statute of limitations mean is that a certain crime cre- create, hold on, I'm, I'm, I'm stumbling over my words here. What statute of limitations mean is that a certain crime committed only has X amount of years to be punished and tried. And if that t- certain time expires, even though the perpetrator is caught, you cannot charge him because the years given, the, the cushion given to pers- to prosecute this individual is passed. And so note that technically the crime doesn't count anymore, even though there's undisputed evidence and undeniable evidence to, to charge this individual time has expired to charge this individual. And I don't agree with that. It should be, th- th- there should be no statute of limitations. In November 2018, prosecutors from six involved counties collectively estimated that the case could cost taxpayers $20 million and last 10 years. At an April 10th, 2019 court proceeding, prosecutors announced that they would seek the death penalty and the judge ruled that cameras could, not, that, that cameras could be allowed inside the courtroom during the trial. Good, expose this asshole. On March, 4th, on March 4th, 2020, D'Angelo offered to plead guilty if the death penalty were taken off the table which was not accepted at the time. On June 29th, as part of a plea bargain to avoid the death penalty, D'Angelo pleaded guilty to 13 counts of first-degree murder and special circumstances, including murder committed during burglaries and rapes, as well as 13 counts of kidnapping. I don't think the death penalty should have been taken off the table, but that's just me. We're just going to leave it at that. On August 1st, on August 21st, 2020, D'Angelo received multiple consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. D'Angelo offered a brief apology after listening to days of pre-sentencing, pre-sentencing victim impact statements. He said, quote, I've listened to all of your statements, each one of them, and I'm truly sorry to everyone I have, I have hurt, end quote. No, you're not. Shut up. D'Angelo committed most of the offenses while he was married and raising a family. Neither his wife nor his children ever suspected he was committing serious crimes. His eldest daughter thought he was the perfect father while his wife believed his reasons for being away from home. Of course. If there's no issue at the house, you're not going to wonder and doubt what's going on with someone, even though they're a stone cold killer like this guy is. You're not going to, you're not going to suspect. I can't blame the family for that, for them not not believing that their dad was, or their, their, yeah, their dad and husband was the insane monster that he is. In November, 20, in November 2020, D'Angelo was transferred to the North Kern State Prison. As of February 2021, D'Angelo is incarcerated in protective custody at California State Prison, Corcoran. Take the protective custody off and let the inmates do the justice. That's my thought on that. And I'm not going to get too much into that. What I mean, look, you murdered a bunch of people. You raped a bunch of people. You're going to meet karma sooner or later. Why protect this piece of garbage? Leave them in, leave them in general population and let the, let the inmates handle the inmates and let street justice rise. That, I mean, I've said it before. I've said it again. I believe 
that an eye for an eye when it comes to, you, you, you hurt someone, you hurt someone's family member and it's going to come back at you, then it's going to come back at you. And I don't think we should be protecting people at all. Not once. So Graveyard Grumbler's final wrap. Let's go ahead and wrap this episode up. But, I mean, again, I said that he did a lot of fucked up things and he really did. He was one of those guys that just couldn't, he, he couldn't satisfy the beast that was within him. And what sucks is that a lot of people were hurt. A lot of people lost their innocence. A lot of people lost their life. A lot of people lost their comfort and trust in society. And that's a, that's a horrible thing, especially when your innocence gets taken away. When you can't go on without the fear and the trauma that one jackass, one, one disgusting human being has done to you, it's really difficult. And I, that's why one of the reasons why I believe that the death penalty should never be taken off the table. I don't give a shit if it's going to take 10 years and $30 million. We need justice. And having someone serve life in prison and when, when the family members are seeking death penalty, I don't think that that's right. I, I don't think that we should take the death penalty away just to, just, just to satisfy and have this, this, court, this case end quicker. I don't think so. But I'm not, I'm, not, I, I'm not in the justice system. And I never will be. Other than that, I'm glad that he was caught. It's just insane that he was just arrested back in 2020 and that he's still alive and doing well in 2021. There's video of him dancing and praising around in his jail cell out there in California still. He should have been taken out. He should have been a lot of things. But hey, you know what? That's what that's what they have. That's what they do. And there's not much anybody else can really say. So... On top of that, there's not much more on on this episode that I'm going to do. Uh, it, it it was a clear clear cut showcase. Everything here is is pretty much done. We have a few announcements. So a very important announcement that's coming in here soon is that the podcast is going to be changing. Instead of being released on Fridays now, I'm going to be releasing it on Tuesdays because my days off are changing. My new days off are Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. And if you listen to the radio show, the radio show will be live on Monday mornings now. So it's going to be Monday mornings at 10 or maybe it might be a little bit earlier. Who knows? Because I, I mean, I have a lot of things to, to get done. And pretty soon, I don't know when I'm going to have to take a little, a little break from releasing stuff. I have some important things that I need to get taken care of. So it won't be soon. It'll be in the coming weeks. I'll make the announcement when, when not to expect anything to come out. Other than that, I appreciate everyone. Thank you so much from the bottom of my heart. Thank you, NT, for suggesting this jacked up case. It was a, it was pretty, pretty good research. It was easy to get done, and, and I'm glad that you, you recommended it. I appreciate you so much. Thank you for listening. And as always, good morning, good day, good night, goodbye. This is the end, this is the end, this is the end. Graveyard Grumbler Graveyard Podcast. Grumbler.